Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Christopher Milo's journey through dance music is a unique one. He traces the roots of his DJ career to the early 90s in Florida, a state not especially known for its rave scene. Through a combination of drive, musical curiosity, and as he tells it, exceptionally good travel connections, he helped plant the seeds of the culture there. Many credit him with throwing the first raves in the Southeast. But as a DJ, producer, and label owner, the man best known as Three made a name for himself well beyond the Sunshine State. He's that rare dance music figure who truly lives up to the term DJ's DJ, and the records he's championed by way of Hallucination, and especially its spin-off Hallucination Limited, are revered by the likes of Cassie and Ricardo Villalobos. Decades on from his first time behind the decks, he's still incredibly enthusiastic about dance music culture. It showed through when he came by our Berlin office recently, where our interview fell on the eve of the launch of Hallucienda, the latest evolution of his label. Would it be correct to say that your first exposure to DJing was at a roller rink? I think I read that. <laughs> yeah, I would say, um, you know, while I was lucky enough to grow up around uh, my father's stereo system at home, you know, he had a whole wall in the mid 70s full of uh, sound equipment two crown reel to reels, a Luxman turntable, you know, Dolby DBX uh, compressors and automatic equalizer, you know, like the full Monty for the 70s. It was quite a an array, but I didn't really un- know anything about DJing per se until I moved to Florida and uh, a couple years probably or immediately thereafter started going to roller skating rinks. And, you know, that that was the first time I was really hearing any, you know, dance music per se and well before, you know, quote unquote house music or rave culture or at least house culture because it would have been, you know, 82, 83. So I'm like 12 or 13 years old. And the soundtrack was very much, uh, you know, what I would call you know, or what you need to identify now as real electro, New York freestyle, Miami freestyle. And uh, I think it was possibly, you know, b-boy culture was such a thing, you know, peaking in 83 and 84. You had like the the Warp Tour now for skateboarding. You had these like the Swatch Watch Fresh Festival, you know, for breakdancing and hip hop and all this stuff. And uh, breakdance movies started to come out. And even though it was all overdubbed, crudely probably overdubbed, uh, you know, you were looking at turntables and mixers for the first time. I mean, you know, I remember it had to be at least a year and a half spent amongst my friends trying to figure out how scratching was done, you know, and, and you would go to school or talk to kids on the bus and they were like, oh yeah, you know, you, you, there's a glove you wear that has a diamond on it and it makes a scratching noise, like every wrong, you know, like, you know, it's, it's like young kids trying to figure out about, you know, sex. You hear a lot of bad information initially, you know, <laughs> and, um, at the same time, my sister was in, in the Armony in West Germany, if you want to go back, <laughs> and she was buying sound equipment and whenever she would buy new stuff, she would send uh, over a turntable, like I think a, a Techniques SLD3 was, was a direct drive turntable at the time. Obviously, it didn't ever supersede the 1200, but I had one of those and I had, you know, two cassette decks and I would make 
pause button mixtapes, you know, it's just taking bits off of there. But one day I put that turntable in the neutral position and this all sort of ties back into the skating rink and I accidentally pulled the record back, you know, and I heard this noise, you know, and I was like, oh man. And I ran and I called my friend and I brought the phone over, you know, like, like just completely accidentally like figured out scratching. But around the time finally Beat Street came out, that breakdancing movie, and that was probably the most I'd seen, you know, any uh, DJ scenes you know, in a film or visually anywhere. And that just drove me bonkers. I had to get inside the DJ booth at the skating rink to see what the hell was going on. So I eventually went there long enough as you do to any club or anything. And, you know, you get buddy buddy with the people, even though you're a kid at a skating rink. And I got to go in the booth and actually see the turntables and then figure out, you know, where such and such music was coming from. And, you know, that was probably, you know, a huge thing. So, you know, even just from what was going on back home in Pennsylvania, my father's office, home office with all that sound equipment, that was an inspiration about technical stuff. But to actually, you know, sort of just have all those moments of discovery, you know, both innocently and both born of obsession as a 13 year old really set me on a path, you know, like. Do you know what it was in particular about DJing that drew you in so much? I mean, was it the music? Was it something about the equipment? I think first and foremost, it was absolutely the music. I mean, you know, it's just, I remember there was a big graffiti piece like on inside the, the sleeve of the Beat Street soundtrack. And, it, and one of them was like the hip hop, the beat you just can't help. You know, I, I think absolutely the music, you know, that, that, that electronic music years before house or hardcore rave or techno or anything that I was hearing, you know, that, I mean, that was drum machine, keyboard music, and, you know, largely focused around John Robbie, Arthur Baker, you know, I mean, these are all the people behind, you know, pretty much any benchmark record you can come up with from C-Bank, One More Shot to Planet Rock, you know, John Robbie, especially like he was the guy. Yeah, I was just obsessed with the music very much so, you know, and um, when I was younger, I had older brothers who were just forced, you know, sitting me down and forcing me to listen to, you know, albums beginning to end, you know, Rush, Pink Floyd, Super Tramp, you know, I've always being shown good music. Father was showing me classical and, you know, Ray Charles and all this stuff. But in terms of a, of a music that I instantly just identified with as a kid, it was the music at the skating rink that really uh, just, yeah. When did you finally start DJing? So then it was a matter of, you, you know, you then you find out that you start going to teen clubs, you know, and there's lots of, you know, the breakdancing cultures, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's not just the skating rink, but you're able to go to a club and then you see the DJ there. And there was a Radio Shack mixer that was actually a really popular mixer at the time. And, uh, and then eventually you meet a kid who's got one of those at home, you know. So I don't think I ever really knew how to DJ. It was a matter of you just, you'd want to go over to one of those kids houses man and then and then then i realized that the turntable i had was better than the little belt drive turntables so i'd bring my turntable over and you know and it's really no idea what you're doing the idea of beat mixing wasn't even a thing i think you know more or less still the the hip-hop side of djing was what was fascinating to me you know like and eventually you know trying to scratch more and then you find out about things like uh you know the dmc dj battles which you know i think a lot of people are very unaware of how many uh house and techno people were DMC contestants, finalists, or champions from Speedy J in the techno world. Uh, I think Orlando Vroon, if I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, CJ McIntosh, old school garage house DJ from England. Uh, I think progressive house DJ Anthony Papa from Australia. All these cats were, you know, for better or worse, turntablists of their time, you know. 
I think more time goes by, you know, you see those sort of things, you see those videos. I don't think I ever really stepped into a DJ booth though until the very first time that I ever, because I would go to alternative clubs as in my late later teens. At that time, hip hop was in its golden era. There was always going to be some Public Enemy played or Eric B and Rakim, you know, that type of thing. And uh, and I was always talking to the guy about that music. And one night at a club in Tampa, he's like, "You want you want to play the the, the hip hop set tonight?" And I was like, "You know, sure." You know, even though I had no freaking idea like what to do, but all I, what I knew I could do by that point was, uh, you know, just scratch segue into the next record. You know, just like a quick into the next one. You know, and that was in front of like 500 people the first time I ever did anything like that. And then eventually a year later, you know, he moved away and offered me the the spot, and I basically, you know, just learned like right there. You know, learned the the whole thing, beat mixing, all all that stuff, kind of thrown to the wolves, you know, if, if you will. You said that you were sort of originally playing in like an alternative club. Any of our listeners who maybe weren't around in the '90s, yeah, to kind of know what you mean by that, uh, describe the sort of music and the atmosphere and everything about, it's actually, about a place it's, like that. It's really fascinating to me because it's only in the last several years that I really put together, sort of connected the dots. You know, but uh, the type of music that we're largely talking about here, I would imagine in Europe is, is more known as uh, EBM, electronic body music. So we're talking, you know, industrial music, Belgian new beat, and then anything from Skinny Puppy to Front 242 to, you know, even Lords of Acid and those sort of things, which were um, oddly part of the evolution of uh, the hip hop and the New York freestyle stuff in my teens, still in high school. The first time I ever heard house music proper would have been probably in 11th grade, maybe 1986 or 87. And I had a friend who could drive. He was 16 and he was from Chicago. And I had tapes. I had tapes of DJ Red Alert, you know, one electrifying mojo tape, which was, you know, similar, but a lot more uh, with the freestyle and electro and stuff. Um, but the first time that I ever really heard just, you know, house music end to end in terms of, you know, the defining difference is the fact that, you know, four, four kick drum or more electro freestyle rhythms, you know, so instead of it's so this kid's got this tape and the music sounds largely all the same, you know, as the other music I've been hearing in the skating rinks and stuff, but it's got, you know, just this four, four kick drum made it really, you know, much more hypnotic and, uh, you know, more about momentum, I think, and stuff. And I never heard anything like, I was like, what, what is this music? And he's like, well, this is what we listen to in Chicago. And again, this is like pre-rave culture, you know, and, and, you know, you got to understand that in the mid eighties in Chicago, like 86 and stuff, you know, house music is like a self-contained, you know, culture in, in Chicago, you know, maybe 30,000 copies, 15 to 30,000 copies are selling within the city just of a record people hear on the radio, you know? So these kids would move to Florida and they would just follow suit. They'd listen to what they hear on the, on the radio. So by the time 88, 89 rolls around and things like This Is Acid are happening and there's some pretty big records that are kind of crossing over and then like MTV is using little bits of Jack Your Body and their 32nd, you know, blips between commercials and stuff. And, you know, and one day you're sitting there and you're playing an alternate record and the kid next to you goes, I know that's where that sample's from. And I'm like, what do you mean what sample? And it's a Sterling Void sample or something like that, you know? And, and he's like, oh yeah, I got all those records from living in Chicago. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It just seems absurd, you know? And then he comes over the next day with crates of records with like black label Chicago tracks things, not even the red ones, like the ones from like 85, 86. That's how I got my first copy of what is 
I still think my favorite Chicago house record of all time, Master C and J, Dub Love. I just couldn't believe it, man. You know, and these kids had no more interest because they just went to whatever they heard on the radio next. That was what they heard on the radio in Chicago. And so this, you know, they moved on to, I don't know what was happening at the time, New Jack Swing on the radio or whatever, you know, they moved on, on to that stuff. So where, where it switches in back to this whole thing about alternative music is, uh, and this is what I've started to piece together only in the last several years, and I find it really fascinating. Industrial music, Wax Tracks Records was a huge label. Um, we're talking like Ministry, Skinny Puppy, the, the Revolting Cox, just lots of strange names, you know, largely, you know, Again, you know, just like the John Robbie stuff, you know, John Robbie was a, and Arthur Baker were central to a lot of music I was listening to. Uh, Alan Jurgensen of Ministry, all these people were, were of a similar, you know, ilk and this stuff. So the the soundtrack at clubs like say Medusa's, which would have been a club that sort of flirted more between alternative dance music and house music in Chicago, that was you know happening at clubs in Florida, clubs in Miami. I think, gosh, what was there was one in particular, Fire and Ice, and maybe Cheers. This was going on big time in Texas, in Dallas, uh, especially at, maybe at the Start Club, perhaps, which would have been the last club that ecstasy was legal at in the United States, I think, <laughs> and in New York. You know, like the, the market for that style of music, for industrial music, I think Florida was, was maybe the third largest market in the country. And uh, Tampa was just oddly enough, one of the best places for it, you know, and so the... Um, I would go to uh, the clubs and, and hear this music, you know, and uh, and you would hear you would hear Master C and J, Dub Love, in between Skinny Puppy, Assimilate, in between Cattle Grind by Revolting Cox, and then you know you would hear some some rock and roll stuff too. The first time I ever heard, you know, bands like Nirvana. I mean, Nirvana played one of the clubs in Tampa, you know, six hundred people maybe tops, you know, way before. Never mind all that stuff. There was a really thriving alternative music scene, but there was a dance music scene, you know, based on that pre-rave. You know, you would also hear This Is Acid, all this stuff. Uh, I think that's really fascinating, actually, that you would have kind of the, the local dance music culture. And it's not like Florida didn't have a dance music culture. It was yep. just quite a bit different. It was more focused on electro or on mm -hmm. bass, something like that. And then these records that we think is these kind of classic, quote unquote, American house records mm -hmm. Are being played at the alternative club in the same context yeah you know, i get chills just thinking about it like it's it's crazy if i think about it now that's what you know every time i go to chicago i'm always trying to find someone who knows about these clubs because i want to that's who i want to talk to you know because that stuff is running parallel to places like the warehouse and obviously you know the older i get and the more you know more musical growth i have yeah i learned more i learned more about soul and that you know vocals and house music and all this stuff but the the music that i was most engaged with and i think that's why maybe there's always been uh, a sense of urgency in the music that i like is is because it comes from this really raw you know foundation <laughs> of industrial stuff i mean you know skinny puppy um, assimilate you know there's a guy named freaky chakra don bentley uh, based out in california and he made a song called Black White Fantasy, which, which is just this amazing record from the early 90s and is completely inspired by Skinny Puppy Assimilate. Like, so I, I see these dots connecting all the time. And it's also kind of interesting, too, because I found it rare for a long time to meet anyone in England who had an interest in, you know, because there were English acts that got played in these clubs all the time, you know, in, in the States, like, you know, Sisters of Mercy, Tones on Tail, all this stuff. Uh, and uh, English people are largely dismissive of that. You know, they didn't want to hear anything about it. But you talk to someone like Kashmir or Derek Carter, and, you know, they know all about this stuff. You know, like every, Maurice Fulton, probably I've read, you know, has a pretty uh, interesting music background, although I've never met Maurice. So, you know, in, in America, you know, yeah, you had this whole thing like Medusa's and all this stuff. And then 
And, and like you said, there were clubs that were playing electro in a more commercial radio fashion, but there was this underground, like, you know, rave culture came in and sort of changed the, the thumbprint of how underground was perceived, you know. And you say that kind of all of this that was happening in, in Florida, like yeah. the environment that you grew up sort of the first places that you were DJing and you, you described it before as being pre-rave. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I read somewhere you have said that you threw one of the first raves in the region. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is what it is. I, we certainly threw some of the, uh, you know, arguably the first warehouse raves in the Southeast, but it surely was not the first house music that was being played in the region. And uh, So what set what you were doing apart? Well, you know, we were interested in rave culture. So we were thinking, yeah, let's, let's throw some fucking warehouse parties, you know. Like, and, and where were you hearing about this? I mean, what were the influences if there wasn't much of it going on in the, well, in the, in the region at that time? I, you figure if 88's the summer of love for England and English rave culture, you know, and this stuff is seeping into the alternative clubs and, and you've got guys like Doc Martin out in San Francisco who's, you know, probably the first guy to stop playing hip hop and start going to the record stores where most of the gay DJs in the city were shopping and buying high energy and, you know, kind of being the first guy to do house music. One of my favorite stories is uh, Sunshine Jones of Dub Tribe. His great story is that he'll never forget the first night he went out and his favorite DJ wasn't playing hip hop, but playing all this stupid dance music, you know. The rest is history, obviously. Sunshine becomes dub type sound system and a house music icon, you know, that type of thing. Uh, there are all these, you know, moments. You know, I, I came up a couple of years, I think, behind, you know, Doc and guys like Josh Wink and Philly. But, you know, we were interested in, in rave culture. I think uh, New Year's Eve 90 to 91, I, I was aware that the only place that it was going on in some capacity that I could imagine it was like in England was in LA, you know. So I took a bunch of college money and bought a ticket to a two week, you know, trip to LA and went out there and, and I went to, you know, warehouse parties with five checkpoints and, you know, Frankie Bones being the guy who, you know, arguably kicked off rave culture in the States to begin. He's out there DJing with Chris Crunch, Michael Cook, you know, a lot of the LA pioneers. And, um, I still had the Frankie Bones tape I got from the meeting point from that warehouse in New Year's Eve. You know, like I went out there expect, you know, searching for sure. I wanted to see what it was all about, see what was going on. And I expected to be completely just blown away, you know, and not have any inclination after seeing what everyone, you know, I didn't expect that I would go out there thinking I could do this anymore. You know, I thought it was going to be this, oh, you know, like, like, you know, like the first time you see, you know, a pro skateboarder in real life, you know, or something like that, you know, but instead I heard records I owned, I heard DJs make mistakes and I actually left pretty inspired. I probably spent about $600 at prime cuts and the other shop down the street, which now I can't remember the name, but they were like these shops in LA. I, I got this big US mail bag and brought, and I bought everything. You know, I think the the big thing about the roller skating rink and the alternative club eras is it, it made me really eclectic in the head, you know? So I bought, even though there were all these genres, I wasn't interested in just being a guy who only liked this or that because that seemed kind of boring or limited. And it also seemed like a real fanboy way to be, you know, I figured this, there's got to be something that I'm going to find interesting in one of these genres, you know? So I bought all the plus eight records, all the D zone records. It was like hard techno, British hardcore, you know, there was new groove stuff, you know, and I just, I bought everything I could possibly buy. And I, I brought it back to Florida and I was determined that I was you know, like, I'm going to save up for a year and I'm going to move out West. That's where it's happening. You know, I'm going to move to LA. And, uh, 
if there was ever a, a big moment for me with all this, you know, like I see rave culture happening, really just starting in 90-ish, couple years after England, you know, starting to see people doing that. Got back to Florida, and that's why I started talking to people about we should throw a party like I've seen them doing in, in, in L.A. And I met, you know, David Christopher of Rabbit in the Moon, who would later become, you know, Rabbit in the Moon, and, and along with his partner, uh, DJ Monk at the time. And I'm like, look, we got to find a warehouse, you know, have map point. We'll, we we got to come up with some weird names for like the, you know, the, the set. You know, th- there was a lot of theatrics involved, you know. Like, and you and know. when you actually did it, how did people respond to it? Oh, it was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. We, I mean, we went all out. I did, we did everything. We, we ordered, you know, because smart drinks were a big fad at the time at, at, at parties and stuff. You know, these vitamin drinks. We, we ordered smart drinks. We had a second room with black lights and, and like paint pens hanging from the ceiling so everyone could draw. And, and you know, David was already a, you know, a, a really well-established musician. He was in a band called Parade in Paris that was, uh, you know, had toyed and done dance with a few labels, including Atlantic, you know, major, major record labels. And, uh, he approached me one night. I didn't I had no idea who he was. I was DJing at an alternative club, and he approached me with it with a tape, like a, a demo tape, you know, and uh, handed it to me and and started to walk away. And I was like, "Hey, I was like, you know, what is this? What are you doing?" And what now is to me and anyone who knows him, classic David Christopher uh, fashion. He just he looked at me and goes, "Basically, it's like this: you're the first DJ I've ever heard that doesn't sound like he's just playing other people's music." And he turned his head and he just walked away. And I'm like all right, you know, and I called the number and eventually we, we met up and he had been producing these tracks for uh, these guys called, gosh, the Groovy, something Groovy Caterpillars. You know, they're going to kill me for not remembering their name, but, uh, and he's like, why don't you come over, you know, and, and let's, you know, let's get in the studio, you know. So he had, you know, all this gear and we started noodling around and repurposed some of these songs from like 115 beats per minute to 120 so we incorporated that into the party. You know, we performed some of these songs. We had we invited DJs from all the other you know places that we knew in the state were doing stuff. Uh, Orlando, Miami, Tallahassee, which was you know where uh, Florida State University is. You know, so I mean, you know, there, there are people very cognizant and aware and doing stuff. You know, and you know, I think the biggest thing that was going on in Florida at the time, if not the most poignant, was uh, the Beecham Theater which was in Orlando, really, really impactful thing. I just don't think maybe necessarily something that gets brought up in the conversations of the history of dance music, just because, you know, some things haven't, some things don't get mentioned as much, but, uh, you know, in hindsight, like having eventually gone to the sound factory and stuff like that, if, if Southeast rave culture had sort of a, a starting point for not only, you know, intense rave culture, like a night that started at midnight and usually ended at 10 a.m. or noon, you know, but it was very much in tune with the way the bigger clubs in New York were like, you know, it was just Kimball Collins and Dave Canalti all night. You know, it wasn't like this huge lineup and dependent upon guest DJs or anything. You know, it was a fascinating thing. So when I when I said before that, you know, throwing the the warehouse rays uh, certainly wasn't, you know, Whereas out in California, warehouse raves were, were very much the foundation of, of rave culture. But I would say that in Florida, uh, very much not. I, you know, I think it was the exception rather than the rule. The rule was that there was music being played at clubs, really good underground music being played at clubs, even though the whole thing in the beginning in the States, it was a rebellion to club culture. You know, you weren't hearing the music you wanted to hear in the clubs. Then you started throwing parties, whether it was in, you know, uh, you know, an empty place in, in a strip mall, 
<laughs> or if you know a bingo hall like and in, 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 down in miami it was always these weird like bingo hall like gather you know like for you know a lot of a lot of bingo halls in a lot Florida. of a lot of fucking bingo halls right yeah. you know so you know it was just reactionary to all that and of course it all you know eventually it becomes the only thing you hear in the clubs to some degree it all comes full circle and parodies itself but yeah, the reaction to the to the warehouse party was insane. You know, it was unbelievable. I think we did about 650, 700 people, you know, and all people who got the address off my answering machine at my apartment, you know, and uh, just absurd, really. It was absurd. You know, the next one we did after that, you know, that was in December. The next one we did was in March of 91. You know, we would have been the first people to bring Moby to the Southeast, to bring, uh, you know, at the time of Go and all that stuff, uh, Doc Martin, you know, that's how Doc Martin and I met. And we've been sort of stuck with each other ever since, <laughs> you know, we, we, I made a really good friend with him and he was probably the most influential, you know, like, cause his set was really interesting. Cause he, you know, did his first hour of all the, the hardcore rave of the time and then transitioned into stuff like Jam and Spoon Stella and Future Sound of London, Papua New Guinea. And then stuff like, you know, like proper house music labels, like illegal, like, guys like Nelson Paradise Roman and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and he, he was like, yeah, you know, what's happening in LA now is, you know, there, there's parties where hard, where hardcore isn't even being played at all. He's, he's like, and, you know, and he was the one who really bridged the gap, I think, nationally across the country for house music into rave culture. And, you know, in the California mindset, the California way of doing things, they were playing all the records that the proper house jocks in New York and Chicago were playing, but they were also getting really out there and playing all the dubs or working the, the bonus beats and the percapellas and the acapellas and stuff. And it was a really, you know, mix heavy style. Um, I'm really struck sort of by how aware you are of kind of what else is going on in the States in terms mm. of dance music during this time. Mm. I mean, you were really, I think, making an effort to connect the dots with these different rave cultures. I might be skipping ahead a little bit, mm -mm. but there's a, a story that I, that I really like which is that if you were able to get standby tickets, mm -hmm. you would go up to New York for one night, mm -hmm. have dinner, head to Sound Factory Bar, party until noon, and mm -hmm. then come right home. <laughs> yeah, I was lucky enough to have a girlfriend who, whose mother was a, uh, a flight attendant for like 27 years, so she had really high seniority. Because, you know, flying standby, you know, first you have, have to have someone who can get the standby tickets. And then the standby order is based on their seniority, you know. And then her father was a, a you know, worked in ticketing for another airline. So there were two options at all times, you know. And for like 60 to 100 bucks, you could go anywhere at a moment's notice. So, yeah, man. I mean, uh, more than a handful of trips to the Sound Factory, uh, a trip to Detroit to see... Uh, what I think would have been the five-year anniversary of Planet E and maybe the 10-year anniversary of Metroplex, all under the same roof. I mean, at a time where, uh, you know, there were people like Laura Gavor from Transmat, uh, may she rest in peace, like people who took us to see where the Music Institute was, took us to, to you know, underage warehouse raids, but, you know, we also spent this whole time at this thing, and it was a really... Exciting time. I mean, you know, that must have been 94-ish, maybe a little bit later, but I'm thinking 94, like, you know, James Lavelle is running around and, and, you know, in hindsight now, you know, you can tell that that was, you know, he was doing his best to do things like license interzone orchestras, bug in the bass bin. But uh, yeah, I did whatever I could to get anywhere, whether I had to pay for it or not, because I, you know, what I was realizing is how global it was. And I think I always 
had a, a thing in the back of my head where it, it's like, you know, I kind of felt even though Florida is a peninsula, <laughs> I maybe felt like I was on an island, you know, and in Florida, it got, you know, I think it must be also said that, you know, I was definitely, you know, as things were coming up and growing in Florida, I was definitely the black sheep DJ wise. You know, most of my peers were, were chasing a, an overtly British sound, you know, and what at the time was, you know, very prominent underground sound is progressive house. But, you know, where I was really blown away by someone like Sasha and that sort of thing, everyone else was really trying to, you know, sort of following that, you know, like, like there was a, a signpost, you know, for, for them. And I just thought it was fascinating that there was a DJ that had his own thing like that. Like, that's what I was interested, you know, I mean, Laurent Garnier, Derek May, you know, Sasha, all these people, uh, you know, Sven, you know, then, and even, even still, um, you know, all DJs that I got to see that I was just like, you know, fuck, they're known for what they do, the way they do it. You know, even though there is a genre slapped, you know, upon them, so to speak, in a general sense, they're known for what they do. You know, they're known for being Derek May, for being Sasha, that type of thing. And, and so that's was always far more interesting to me. Initially, it, it was uncomfortable, I think, because it's like, you are in Tampa, and not only are you really different and far removed, or at least you feel that way in your own region, but then you've, you know, and the only people you're really sort of identifying with, and not even because you know them, but just because you're, you're of how you perceive them, you know, to be individual or their own thing. I think at first it, it felt really uncomfortable. Like, you know, why, if I'm, nobody seems to like these records at the record store, <laughs> you know what I mean? But yet when I play them, everyone comes up and asks what, what they are, that, that type of thing. Like, uh, yeah, I was going to ask about yeah. that because you, you say you're sort of a black sheep, <laughs> but I wondered if you were still making an impact on, on crowds, like even if other DJs were not entirely sure about what you were doing. It, it, well, there, I, there was a tipping point or there like maybe a watershed moment for sure. Like, uh, cause I guess another big part of what was going on is, is, uh, you know, I was a, a buyer at a record store in Tampa. That was really the first place to legitimately get underground dance music. And I started that job in, I guess, late 93. And, uh, and I kept that job till 1998. And that was basically how I funded my, my habit. You know, there were record stores in Orlando. There was Underground Records Store in Orlando. There was Underground Records Source, which was Carlos, the guy who arguably, like, you know, funded and founded Merck with Oscar and, and Ralph. I mean, there were places to get music in Florida, you know, but you had to tr you had to drive or you had to call up and trust someone to fill up an order for you or whatever. So, you know, becoming a buyer in the record store and then just the few experiences you have, you know, like I, a lot of people don't really know about this stuff anymore, you know, but you walk into a record store and you might get treated really lame, you know, like, or you might say, wow, I really like this record. And they, you know, the guy behind the counter doesn't like that record, turns his nose. And so I really took it upon myself as a buyer at the record store to, uh, People came in and they asked what was cool and I would ask them what they liked, you know, like because, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And I wanted people to figure out their own their own identity, to figure out what they liked on their own, because, uh, you know, back to the uh, the Beecham Theater Orlando thing, you know, there's a whole giant wave. This was the first time at, you know, a bunch of white, straight middle class kids had ever had, you know, huge moment of ecstasy and music and a lot of them didn't move on you know like music would, was advancing and stuff in the next two or three years they didn't want to hear any of that music and then all of a sudden you had like kids like finally getting the records that they were hearing Kimball and Dave play and starting you know classics night because they just couldn't get past this big one epic moment they had and there was no other culture for them around it no other backstory I imagine in Chicago or, or Detroit you grew up around someone listening to that music or it was on the radio or you had a brother who listened to it you know there was some 
context or way to connect the dots. But, I, you know, I think for a lot of people early on, you know, in most suburban white middle class rave culture, you know, like there, there might have been that big watershed moment at first and then you didn't even know what to do after that. You know, it almost ruined you <laughs> in some regard, you know. The record store, you know, that was a huge, huge thing. And yeah, so I, I was getting to a point where I noticed that I was drawing the same crowds as the other big Florida DJs and getting the same response and getting respect and getting, you know, booked at all the right parties and top name on the flyer. But where I'm, you know, playing Ron Trent altered states, you know, and everyone else is arguing over what, you know, perfecto acetate they're going to play that weekend. You know, it was a, there was definitely no air of superiority with me. If anything, it just made me really uncertain of what the hell I was doing, you know. So that's why when I did see people like Laurent for the first time, Laurent was a DJ who was super eclectic, you know, and he was playing, you know, he's doing double copy mixes with Energy 52 and three records later he's playing, you know, fucking strings of life. You know, I, I was like, that is what I'm trying to do. You know, like that's the direction I'm trying to go. And, and you know, I think if it wasn't for meeting him back at that time and hearing him play the few times I did, there's a good chance I might not have even kept at it, you know, because it just it gave you some sort of direction that what you were doing was okay. not validation, but even just letting you know that, you know, okay, you know, you're not just completely alone and avoid, you know, in, in what you are trying to do. Tell me about starting Hallucination. Well, that was, you know, that David and Steve, after we threw those first couple warehouse things and stuff, David, who was T. Confucius in Rabbit in the Moon, and DJ Monk, who was uh, Steve, you know, David and I continued to noodle around with music, but I think that they clicked on a level that was a little more uh, fun, I think, you know, musically, and... Uh, and Steve, you know, owned a club in Tampa. He ended up buying one of the clubs that was one of the big alternative clubs. And uh, so, you know, like it, it just turned into like, you know, Dave would lug his, his ASR 10 and, you know, some gear down to the DJ booth every week. And they would literally just DJ together, combination of live, you know, triggering samples and stuff and DJing. And, and they started, you know, getting the studio. So Hallucination was literally born just out of, you know, an outlet for them to put out music, you know, as Rabbit in the Moon. Or I think, you know, the first things they did were like still during the hardcore rave stuff. So 12 inches, like, like I think the names were Anarchy and stuff like that, you know, really cheeky stuff. The watershed moment for them was uh, the Out of Body Experience record. And um, it's interesting. I think we've thought about a lot about that over the last couple of years because that, you know, we ended up. When I say we, I just mean collectively with them. You know, it's, it's Dave and Steve's record. Rabbit Hallucination was their, you know, brainchild. But I came up in and around it, both, you know, behind the scenes uh, and being in the studio from time to time. And, you know, eventually ended up being an artist, you know, on the label. But David... 3 a.m. Yeah, well, the 3 a.m. with David. And then, uh, you know, after the 3 a.m. remix of Out of Body Experience, which it's crazy to think, you know, on, on Hard Kiss and then became... Not only was the original on the Hard Kiss Delusions of Grandeur album, but they included our version as well, you know, and, and that was like charting at like number 15 in Rolling Stone's top 20 college album chart. You know, it's like crazy. And then to 10 years later, be a part of Secondhand Satellites with one of my best friends, Sean Cusick, and, and sort of have our own Rabbit in the Moon out of body experience on the label. You know, just you know, really unbelievable to look back and, and think about that. It was crazy with that record. You know, we went to New Music Seminar, uh, which was basically like the big dance music thing to do in America before Winter Music Conference really picked up the ball and ran with it. I think the last year of New Music Seminar in New York City was uh, 1994. And to give, I don't know, the Europeans some context, that's like a Meet M or an ADE, you know, it was basically for bands, 
and all the dance music people from all over the world were like, well, who the hell doesn't want to take over New York City? We can go too, you know, and, and there were panels and, you know, and there's panels of legend, you know, there's panels where, you know, Derek May has got up and walked out when Martin Price said that English rave culture was, you know, purely based upon the arrival of ecstasy, all this stuff. I, I got to see all that stuff firsthand, you know, it was crazy. It's really cool looking back. But again, like you were saying before, just I just trying to get any information I could, you know, because you felt really far removed back in Florida. And, you know, so when they made this record, Out of Body Experience, you know, they, we gave some white labels to all the Florida DJs and really didn't hear from anyone, you know, for a long time. It, it wasn't until they noticed that the rest of the world was paying attention that everyone started, you know, everyone in Tampa, it wasn't just me, like Tampa was the black sheep too, you know, we, we were the weird kids doing the weird stuff, you know, like, I mean. <laughs> I mean, in my, Tampa was mostly a, a hardcore town. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's a small city just outside of it called Brandon, which apparently to this day is still considered the death metal capital of the world in terms of artists you know, go figure, you know, but it's like, I can assure you that living there, you would never know that, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of punk rock, a lot of, you know, I, Tampa had a really raw, amazing music scene, you know, it's just, I, I have no qualms with Tampa at all, like, you know, there's been some really amazing people and artists and music and, you know, both paint artists, all that type of stuff, you know, I, I think it's uh, fitting that the largest collection of Dolly paintings in the world are at the Dolly Museum in St. Petersburg, I mean, you know, it was a cool place, man. You know, like, I mean, you know, or at least it churned us out, you know, and, and a few other interesting things. The, the out-of-body experience record, it's actually a really pretty amazing thing because it, it really, it changed everything. It put the ball rolling, you know. So David and Steve made this record. And, you know, I looked at it as, you know, this was, you know, if, if there was like a uh, a potential American Papua New Guinea by Future Sound of London, you know, that they had done it. This was it, you know, and, and out West you had labels like Exist Dance and Freaky Chakra with the Hallucifuge EP. You had Carl Craig's first records on Planet E, the Peace record, P-I-E-C-E. -E. You know, there were people who were raw and brave with a sampler and making really original music, not just making, you know, BS music, you know, not sampling as an art, you know, so... They had all, you know, had their record out and, and we took about 25 white labels up to New York City and man, everybody, Heinz and Sven from Hard House, John and Richie from Plus Eights, Renaud from R&S, Renaud offered David a, a three album deal, you know, but wanted him for like seven years, three albums, X amount of singles, all this stuff. And like, we just went through this whole day of just, and, and I was just like, whoa, you know, this is crazy. But David, you know, having industry experience from his, his major label band, he just looked at me and he's like, well, this trip's been good because, the, you know, the rose petal glasses are off. He's like, this culture is amazing. And, you know, it, it is, you know, something to, to behold, but it's also no different than any other form of the entertainment business. And on that level, no bullshit's going to stick to me. He's like, these people, you know, who are trying to pull one over on me can all basically, you know, fuck off. And it was crazy because we happened to meet these hard kiss guys who had had a previous white label. You know, OBE was on the flip of one of those hardcore anarchy records originally, you know, but what we took up were the test pressings with the five different versions, one with 3AM that eventually went on to be the release on hard kiss. And, uh, you know, David met the hard kiss guys. We all met the hard, hard kiss guys. We went to their party and their party had everybody there hanging out. Sven was there. Mark Spoon of Jam and Spoon. May he rest in peace. You know, he's there and like big wood necklace banging on bongos, you know, onions is there a DJ and like it, it was just out there. They played the record. Then they played the record that one of the samples is from. And, and Dave and I are just looking at each other like, wow, crazy. And we came back to Florida and, and I was still kind of like, whoa, R&S, you know, but 
a couple of weeks went by and, and, and David decided, and, and I just give him all the props in the world for this, but he was like, you know what? Because another thing that was happening in America then is people were faking being an import for credibility uh, because no one believed, you know, unless you were from New York or Detroit or Chicago, you know, if you were from Dallas or whatever, you know, people were afraid they were faking being a UK import because they were afraid that no one was going to buy the record or take it seriously if it was, you know, made in America. And uh, there were actually people doing this, which was absurd. He was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to go with these guys in San Francisco who are on the same wavelength. It's going to be an American record and it's not going to be, you know, about the money. It was, you know, it's a statement, basically a statement of intent. And uh, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, the rest is history. You know, it really, it ended up being bar none, the right thing to do. And David went on to work for all those people. You know, he, we licensed the Hazed uh, Bell's EP to plus eight. He remixed plenty of stuff for Sven for Hard House. You know, there was just a... Uh, a great relationship because David to me, you know, he was, he was the Matthew Johnson of, of the, of nineties rave culture. I think, you know, he had a, a singular voice. He did it his way, a bit of attitude, but also, you know, a very inclusive guy, clearly the same level of just on the fly talent, you know, and that type of thing. And just determination, you know, just, you know, there was always like, a, you, know, you could see his, his eyebrows were always, you know, he's always something going on in his head, you know? <clears throat> so that was amazing. That whole, to be a part of that, and to look back, like I said before, and re realize that I'm a part of that record, you know, and then 10 years later to be lucky enough to have done something like Secondhand Satellites and have, you know, something legitimately our own for Sean and I was just, you know, really something. I'm just as much a fan as I am an, an artist in any of this, you know, just an incessant need to be involved or contribute in some way, shape or form. You know? And the label has not really stayed in one single form over the years. Mm -mm. I'm, I'm thinking about this because you've just recently morphed again. Mm -hmm. The label began as Hallucination and then spun off Hallucination Limited. Yeah. What um, changed there? And and what was the sort of motivation to take things in a maybe slightly different direction? Well, you know, at the end of the day, it was Dave and Steve's label, you know, and, uh, and then they eventually complete, not only were going different directions, but they split. You know, David uh, moved to L.A. and they took the Rabbit in the Moon name and, and Steve stayed behind and was doing his things. He was running also what I would call more of a, of a ghetto tech label called Hallucinate Tracks. And he, you know, sort of had his own, very much his own, but a similar thing to like what Bad Boy Bill had been doing, you know, like dancers involved and all, you know, like but very hype ghetto tech type of thing. And, you know, I've just always been a guy interested in house and techno and its various permutations, you know, so uh once I saw that the label had sort of slowed down, it was like, you know, it had been about 10 years, you know, 92 to 2002. And, and I was still in Tampa. I wasn't, you know, thinking that I was going to be moving anywhere anytime soon. And, uh, you know, I wanted to sort of launch my own, you know, my own sister label that carried on my vision of what hallucination was to me, you know, records like the Hazed record and Secondhand Satellites and, and you know, the, the 3 a.m. stuff and the raw electro stuff, the Dynamics 2, the Jekyll and Hyde. It was time for me to sort of grow up and have my own my own steez, I guess, you know. And uh, so I did. And then as fate would have it, you know, Doc was trying to get me to move to L.A., but I've, I've another girl came into the fray and I moved to New York City and, you know, Hallucination Limited became, uh, you know, my thing. And, you know, and, and it just so happened, that, you know, it, it does sort of look like a morph over time because Hallucination never really carried on and did much else. And Hallucination Limited did last about 10 years. I, you know, I, I did a mix CD in 2005 called Hallucienda, which, of course, is what the new imprint now is called. 
and it was really well received, you know, by resident advisor, Mixmag, everybody. That was great. But then had the same problems that everybody had in the oath. Our distributor and our P&D, you know, our manufacturing deal went down and things went quiet, you know, for me. Yeah, I did, really didn't know what to do because, uh, you know, in the 90s, the underground trend or, you know, niche market was the the whole ambient techno thing, your warp artificial intelligence, all that sort of stuff, you know, the orb, ambient house. And then that all sort of finally went away and made all the other genres really colorful. You know, like anytime there's a big trend, the best bits of it always seep back down into the building blocks, which are house and techno, you know, house and techno bar none by now has proven itself to be like rock and roll. You know, it's just like the white stripes. It's not derivative, but it has all the characteristics of great rock and roll. Well, that's what great house and techno does, but it's not afraid to take on a great idea, you know? And so then in, in the O's, it was minimal, right? You know, it's getting rid of every organic possibility, stripping it down only to the bare, you know, electron, I wouldn't even say essentials, but stripping it down to just a very, you know, electronic, you know, type of vibe. And, you know, finally that started to dip, you know, I was putting out, you know, house and techno records and tech house records, you know, through that. And they were doing really well. But then when distribution died, I just sat there for a while. And I didn't like the idea of putting the whole catalog up on, you know, Beatport. And then there was still, you know, it still wasn't really 100% my label, you know, I mean, like it was still Steve and Hallucination that was funding it, you know, so I was kind of not at the mercy of that, but we, you know, we're moving further and further away, you know, still great friends, but in terms of a creative path or anything. And then, uh, but then I just started to notice that, you know, like I said, minimal starts to die away. And then all of a sudden you see all, you know, all these people emerging from Germany playing house music and you see the organic vibe seeping back into everything. All of a sudden Luciano's playing, you know, George Morrell records and, you know, everything's just changing, you know, which is healthy, you know, and then, American promoters are bringing over people from overseas to play music that maybe Doc Martin and I are, are already, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, but it's part of this evolution, you know, to for everything to grow. I started to see DJs playing the music, you know, a really wide variety of DJs, especially new school DJs who were who were just, you know, shooting up really quickly, like Wolf and Lamb, Seth Troxler, you know, Soul Clap, uh, and I started hearing catching wind of like people like Ricardo playing Secondhand Satellites and. And then in 2011, uh, you know, Cassie hit me up to put five of the 12 tracks on her uh, Sound of DC-10 Circle Loco Mix Mag cover CD. They, they were from Hallucination, you know, or Hallucination Limited, rather, the one from Hallucination. And I was just like, huh, you know, because the whole goal always, you know, with Dave and Steve was to make David really quickly coming from a band background was cognizant of the throwaway you know, or the danger of dance music being disposable, you know, and, and did you want to put out contemporary stuff that people might not care about in three years because it's not fashionable anymore? Or did you want to put out music that five to 10 to 15 to 20 years down the line, you still want to listen to the way you listen to any great music, you know, so that was the goal always. So it seemed to have worked with Hallucination. And now I was starting to see that my choices for Hallucination Limited for myself had worked. And so I just thought, you know, it's time to figure this out. Well, it took, you know, over a year to figure out how to, you know, split up the relationship between me and Steve, you know, because uh, it's just all of a sudden it's like, it's not as easy as, well, I'm just going to go do this on my own now. Then it's like, well, let's have a look at the books, you know, <laughs> like see what's involved with money. You know, it's all fun and games till art, art and commerce really, you know, rear their ugly head. And uh, so that took a year and then it took a year for me to get everything else together and finally decide that rather than just try to pick up where Hallucination Limited left off, it seemed like a much better idea to just be able to, you know, know that I have access to what I would like from the previous two catalogs 
and start fresh, but still with some sort of continuity as a way to both validate all the work we did separately and together through all that time, validate the fact that the music is still relevant and also valid for me personally to validate the way I've spent the last 23 some odd years of my life, you know? Um, so where, where do you see Hallucienda going? I mean, where is it going to depart? Where is it going to be the same? What's sort of the vision for the next 10 years, let's say, if that's what the cycle is? Right. Well, I mean, I'd like to think that for the first time ever, it'll be, uh, you know, Hallucination was sort of here and there. And, you know, sometimes there was a release, sometimes there wasn't. It's part of its charm, I think. Hallucination Limited was like that, but I think not by anything so innocent or, or particularly cool, but because there was the bullshit with the distributors or, you know, there, or there was always an issue of, do we have money to do this? You know, who's in charge? Who's going to make this happen? So I think for the first time now, and now I've got 20 years of this industry under my belt and, you know, I've got a label manager, there's infrastructure, the money's, you know, I know where the money's coming from and when it's there and when it isn't, you know, because it's not coming from another source now, you know, I just think it's, uh, set up to run like a small, modest little boutique label should run, you know? And, uh, and so, who knows? Yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, I would never be so bold as to say I see myself, you know, around and thriving 10 years from now. But I, you know, I certainly don't see myself stopping. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm in this for the long haul, uh, ravers till the end, I guess, is, as they say. So uh, I'm quite thrilled about the label. You know, the, uh, I think the one thing that's going to be different about it is, uh, you know, it is going to be a, you know, now that it's pushed off out to sea, so to speak, it's, I don't see any land, you know, for it to run up upon anytime soon. There's going to be a consistent amount of music and releases. And, and I, I really like how we have it set up. I like, you know, the vision behind it in terms of we're, we're still going to do, still going to be vinyl centric. You know, we're going to put out vinyl only singles and for the digital rather than just put the catalogs up digitally. I'd, I, I just want there to still remain some sort of inherent value between mediums. You know, I, I saw an interview with Craig Richards recently and, and the interviewer asked him, I think, expecting an, an excitable response, what he thought all, all, about all the new vinyl only labels. And, and he thought he said he thought it was kind of dumb. He thought he thought the vinyl only label thing was was you know, vinyl only is the new MP3 and which I largely agree with. But I wanted to figure out a way both as I see myself as as a music buyer and how I perceive other people, especially Joe Public, not artists or DJs or label people, to be uh, consumers and users of music. So, you know, the digital is going to be for compilations and artist albums. All the artist albums are going to have a mixed version, which may have slightly different content, may not, because I can't remember the last time that anybody at all ever, except maybe the person who made the album or serious music nerds, has ever sat down and listen to a quote unquote album of seven minute long songs with two seconds of space in between them. I, no one's ever done that and if they're doing it I, I assure you they're probably not having very much fun all anyone listens to is mixes now so you know this is just a and I'm not going to make it so that it's the last track on the album and you have to buy the whole album I'm going to make it the first track on the album and I'm going to make it so that it's just the same price as all the other tracks because at the end of the day if someone's only going to buy two of the tracks out of an album but there's a chance that they might enjoy listening to the whole thing as a continuous mix and thus create consciousness for that artist in the heads of, of people out there, I would much rather do that because it helps draw attention to the artist. So the way we are going to handle back catalog stuff is a, a compilation series called Color Fast, which is, you know, just a play on words for timeless, I guess, similar to the way like Perlon does super longevity CDs, you know, cherry picking tracks out of the vinyl catalog once a year. We'll do this annually for for the catalog stuff. So you're going to see bits and bobs from the previous two labels. And as the vinyl catalog grows for Hallucienda, you'll see that. And then the other compilation series will be Phono Obscura, a play on words for not on vinyl. 
and uh, and those will have new new and exclusive music. But I'm re- I'm really pleased about you know it's taken a long time to get here. You know, Hallucination Limited. I'm I'm proud of, but it was frustrating. You know, and and I really wanted some sort of sense of finishing what I started as well as you know the other stuff I was mumbling about about the you know validation and all that stuff. But to me, it's really important to be able to finally have this stuff all working in one moving part and. And I certainly have never operated as a normal professional DJ. You know, I'd put the occasional mix out here and there. I've been really lucky that they've been things like that Rabbit in the Moon remix or Second and Satellites or the Uncle remix, stuff like that. But I, I've always joked that I don't make music for a living, which has largely been true. You know, I've never done it to sustain a DJ career or anything. But now, you know, at least I think there'll be a continuity between three, the DJ, three, the producer, and, and three's record label, which, you know, I, I think is just taken a long time to get here but it's been a nice long slow steady ascension and i'm just certainly not content but i'm quite pleased with where things are now that's for sure